0: Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. Your commands are are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I've kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws for you yourself have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts and therefore I hate every wrong path. Psalm 119 verses 97 to 104. Earlier this week uh, I was at a meeting and this was the passage that we looked at for um, the devotion that began it. And we kind of just, sat with it for a bit and let it settle on us? Because you see, Psalm 119 is almost a love song to God's Word. But when you think on it, you realise that part of what we call God's Word, in fact, the part that the psalmist is particularly singing about his love for, it's God's commands, it's his law. The first five books of the Bible would be what the psalmist is talking about. That's what he meditates on all day long. Those are the words that taste sweeter than honey in his mouth. So, is that the way that you think about God's commandments? Is that the way I think about them? Should it be? As Christians, what do we focus on? We focus on words like faith and hope and grace. We can even sometimes view law as the enemy of those things. Is the law still worth meditating upon? Should it be a thing of beauty for us? What should our relationship with it be? That is what we're going to explore today. Now, for those of you here, here for the first time today or need a reminder of what we've looked at, um, Jesus has had a, made a revolutionary start to his Sermon on the Mount. First, He turns His disciples' assumptions about what the life blessed by God looks like, the values of the Kingdom, He says, are very different from the values of the world around you. And second, He tells His disciples to own that distinction, right? They're salt, they are needed to stand out as living testimonies to God's people, that God is keeping His covenant promises in all their goodness. They are light, They're not just to stand out for their own people, but they're also to stand out in the world. They're to reflect God's goodness so that those who live in darkness might come into His light. And so, taken together, those two things, it's almost as if Jesus is saying that His disciples are the means by which God is going to fulfill the promise that He made all those years ago to Abraham, to bring blessing not just to His covenant people, but to all of the peoples on earth. It's a revolutionary beginning. And he's only just warming up. You see, Jesus teaching about the Kingdom of Heaven has been so revolutionary that it appears that some have been accusing him of actually overturning the accepted teaching of Scripture and just coming up with his own stuff. His breaking with tradition at the very least might call into question whether he only held loosely to the Bible. Well, in today's passage, Jesus says to His disciples, actually, it's the polar opposite. I've come to show you what the Law and the Prophets were actually on about all along. Look at verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the Law of the Prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. Now, I'm sure you remember when you are in primary school, um, doing dot-to-dot puzzles, Right? where you'd be given a number, a lot of numbered dots on a page. And what your job was to do is to connect those dots up in order. Slowly and surely, they would form a picture. And if you were really clever, you could have a bit of a guess as to what it might be, just by looking at the the dots on the page and the connections. If you think about the Law and the Prophets, which was a way of referring to the whole of the Old Testament... Uh, In a sense, Jesus is saying, I've not come to rub out the dots, in fact, I'm not even going to merely just join them up and form an outline, I am going to show you the full picture. I'm going to show you the masterpiece that the Scriptures were pointing to all along. The Kingdom has come near, it is time for Jesus to reveal the reality That had so long been promised. And so then, the law must stand, right? But not as an end in itself, not as a series of token dots, a connection of rules by which you might outline your life, but as an ongoing testimony to what is now being fulfilled in Jesus himself. Look at how emphatic Jesus is in verse 18, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will, by any means, disappear from the law until everything is accomplished, right? That's pretty, that's laying it on, right? We've got to let the strength of Jesus' Word sit with us. See, the temptation might be for us as Christians to say, well, who who cares about the Old Testament, Let's just focus our attention on the New, that's the Jesus bit. Some Christians even try to drive a wedge between the God of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New, as if one of the Old, the old Testament God is nasty and cruel and the, and the New Testament Jesus is loving and kind. But Jesus himself says that the Old Testament, including the Law of Moses, was of vital importance right down to the smallest letter. All of it served to testify to God's saving purposes fulfilled in Christ. Every last stroke of a pen would remain with all of its authority until everything that God promised to accomplish is achieved. If you want to grow, in other words, as a disciple of Christ, if you want to know more fully who your saviour is, what He's achieved, what He's doing, and what His purposes are for you and for the world, you must become a student of the Old Testament as much as you are of the New. And Jesus could not be more emphatic about it than He is right here. Um, Just as a window, that's why we have Bible readings, not just from the passage that we're looking at, but from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, every single time we meet at church regardless of what book of the Bible we're studying. It's why we will always study at least one book of the Old Testament, more often more than one, every single year. And why we'll also encourage people to do PTC courses that are going to help you explore and understand the Old Testament better. Jesus wants his disciples to feel the full weight of the law, which Jesus fulfills, and so cherish it accordingly. Look at verse 19, therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly, will be called least in the Kingdom of Heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the Kingdom of Heaven. Now, set aside there literally means loosens, loosens and you can almost visualize what Jesus is talking about here So back in Deuteronomy, Moses called God's people to bind the law to their foreheads and to their arms, to always carry it with them and before them, to stick it on their lampposts and on the doors of their houses. It was symbolic of holding tightly to what God has spoken and committing oneself by living it, by carrying it around with you wherever you go. Jesus warns that to untie it, to loosen it, to view God's commands now as something that would be somehow less binding, reduced, ignored, is unworthy of the Kingdom of Heaven. Loosen even the least command and God will view you as the least. But living by God's commands, teaching others to do the same thing, is greatness. Greatness in God's eyes. Now, what I'm, we need to do is we need to remember why not even the least of the commands should be loosened. Because they remain relevant until heaven and earth pass away, Jesus just said. Jesus has come to fulfil the law, all of it. And until all is accomplished, is fulfilled, all of it remains. But it's not the law of Moses as Moses himself left it on the, eastern, on the plain east of the Jordan River 1300 years or so before this. It is the law which pointed to Christ, that Christ has now personally come to bring to its fullness. The commands as Christ fulfils and teaches are what those who belong to the Kingdom of Heaven are themselves to practice and teach. But, as I'm sure you picked up when you were hearing the Bible reading, that's probably easier said than done, isn't it? Jesus' next words must have provoked audible gasps from his disciples. For here the weight of Jesus' teaching on the law lands on their ears with a thud, Look at verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law dedicated their whole lives studying the law and teaching others how they were meant to follow it. But look at what Jesus says and He's absolutely firm on this, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, you will certainly not enter the Kingdom of Heaven. Now, one of the implications of Jesus' words here is, is hiding in plain sight, isn't it? If you were sitting there and the disciples and you were seeing a crowd start to build, you might look over your shoulder and just see if there happens to be any Pharisees or teachers of the law there listening in. Because he says quite clearly, they're not righteous enough to enter it. The righteousness exam of these law experts, has got a big fail written across it. Don't measure yourself against them, Jesus says. The standard you need to hit, much higher than that. And so this sets up two tensions, one of which will be resolved in this passage and one will be resolved but not in this passage. The first tension is this, why aren't the Pharisees and the teachers of the law righteous enough? How have they got the law wrong? Maybe, what can we learn from that? The second tension is this, so, well then, what is the standard of righteousness that we need to meet and how can I meet it? Well, in the rest of this passage, Jesus is going to contrast what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law say, of the law, say is righteous with what Jesus himself says is what a fuller understanding of the law really means. Now, let me say at this point, that there is far more in these verses than we could reflect upon in one talk, okay? Um, So, we're going to spend some time exploring perhaps some of the ethical implications for Christians of these passages in tomorrow's podcast. Um, Certainly, if you've got any questions that you would like us to tackle tomorrow in the podcast, can you email me or Mandy sometime today and we'll try to address it when we look at it tomorrow. But six times in the verses that follow, Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. But it's important that we understand who the opponent is in Jesus' words. Sure, do not murder is in the Scripture but when Jesus is speaking of Scripture, He uses the phrase, it is written, to introduce what He is saying, to introduce the quote but here He says, you've heard it said. Jesus is not challenging Moses or the Old Testament. He's challenging the oral traditions that have been passed on by the rabbis, their interpretations of the law that they were teaching in the synagogues. It's what they said the law said, not what was written. The basic kindergarten dot-to-dot ethics of the Pharisees don't stand up to the full ultra-high definition colour reality of what Jesus says the law really means. And Jesus begins with one of the biggest commands of all, right? Verse 21 You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, I'm taking it, no one here has objections to that as a commandment. This is a safe place if people don't have problems with that. <laughs> all right? Um, you shall not murder is straight out of the Ten Commandments, right? We should be going, Yeah, Amen to that. Um, So, what might Jesus' objection to them saying it, what might that be? Well, the clue's in the second part, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That is, should be tried in court. Well, of course they should be, rocket science, but the command ends there. Just don't murder, you won't end up caught. On the Pharisees' teaching, just steer clear of murdering someone and you're not subject to judgment. But Jesus says, well, let me fill out that law for you. It won't just be actual physical murderers that will uh, liable for judgment in God's sight through this command. Look at verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court and anyone who says, you fool, Will be in danger of the fire of hell. as I said, we'll explore this a little bit more in the podcast tomorrow but Jesus is saying that the commandment is not exhausted by the actual act of murder. When you fire up in rage against someone, and I don't think this means all kinds of anger because there are clear cases of righteous anger in the New Testament, Um, but when your blood is boiling and you wish harm, or ill on someone, even if the outlet of that is an insult, words aimed at hurting someone, you're an idiot, or a a more serious writing off of someone as actually being beneath your contempt, you are empty, you are worthless, you're a fool. Jesus says there is a direct line between the malicious heart and the command to murder. In God's eyes, you don't don't need to have actually killed someone to stand guilty before Him on this one. And that's why Jesus gives the advice that He does in verses 23 to 26. And His two examples are quite striking, because in both cases, they're not examples of someone showing the kind of anger that He has mentioned, but that someone who has invited that kind of anger from someone else. Look at the first. Verse 23, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. What does fullness of the law look like? Being a peacemaker. He kind of already told us that in the Beatitudes. Not wanting to be someone that stokes somebody else's anger either. If you really want to bring a gift before God to please him, bring him the gift of a reconciled relationship. Don't be content with a brother or sister's resentment against you. Their anger matters, not just your own. You see the contrast with the one-dimensional dot to dot of, hey, just don't kill people, okay? I mean, if you truly get the command, then you will steer clear of such anger yourself and you'll do your best not to stoke it in others. And the second example is similar, but this time the law court is the destination. If there's a contention between you and an adversary, sort it out and sort it out fast. The heart that longs for the battle, bring it on, see you in court, is the one who might just find the judge at the end of the day calling them the guilty one. Once it gets to the place of judgment, justice and not mercy is the order of the day. In its fullness, the commandment, do not murder, really means keep your anger in check, seek peace, pursue it. And Jesus' next example is really similar, actually, verse 27 and 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, if your heart and your mind do the deed, but your body doesn't, why would God be fine with one if He's not with the other? Join the dots. God wants us to be sexually faithful to our spouses and pure outside of marriage. That is why He says, don't commit adultery. If you transgress in adultery of the heart, you are just as liable to God's judgment as the one who does it physically. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were content to leave this commandment nice and loose. As some today might say, hey, you can look, but just don't touch. The $100 billion a year global porn industry would certainly agree with that. Lust away, where's the harm? Jesus says no, no, no. The God who said, thou shalt not commit adultery, can see your heart and He will not hold those guiltless who break His command and it's such an easy command to break, so take it seriously. Look what it says next, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Literally says it, throw it away from you, which, which I think feels a little bit more personal than merely just saying, throw it away. In other words, it's just kind of getting the offending part as far away from you as you can. Now, mercifully, Jesus is not laying down a a command for people to actually do this. None of the epistles encourage that kind of action. None of his disciples did anything of the sort. Although, later Christians would apply some pretty drastic measures to certain body parts. But his point is well made. Heaven minus a body part, self-evidently better than hell with the whole thing. In other words, take God's command on this one far more seriously than the Pharisees if you want to enter the Kingdom of Heaven. And that's why I think Jesus deals with divorce next. Now, while most commentators tend to make this a separate example, I think there are strong hints in the text that it's really a second aspect of the adultery command. An example of how the Pharisees, in practice, let loose adultery by their traditions. Look at verse 31. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now, this doesn't find its origins in the Ten Commandments, but in Deuteronomy chapter 24, if you're looking this up later on, where Moses is giving a bit of case law, right? He's describing a particular hypothetical example in the law where if someone divorces his wife and then she becomes the wife of a second man who in turn divorces her the first husband's not permitted to marry her again. That's the point that, that Moses is trying to explain. It's a bit of case law. But in the tradition of the elders, as they passed on and taught this stuff, they loosened God's teaching on marriage to saying, when you divorce someone, oh, be fair, give them a certificate. Good on you. And then they got on with having debates with each other about what was or wasn't a good reason for divorcing someone. What fell under the definition of shameful or displeases you? Some would even say, if someone else pleases you more, that's a good enough reason. Some were narrower in the reasons they permitted. Some taught that divorce was allowed pretty much, if anything, was displeasing that you found about your spouse. That was their dot-to-dot way of dealing with the laws of Scripture. Later on in Matthew 19, we read more about Jesus' teaching on divorce. But his point here is, the rabbi's casual position towards divorce actually has a serious consequence, an even more serious consequence. It leads to people breaking the seventh commandment. That's what it leads to. A commandment which in Moses' day would see you executed if you broke it. Look at verse 32. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What God commands from the very beginning in Genesis 2 is marital faithfulness. That's the full picture, the two shall become one flesh and that's meant to be a delightful thing. The only situation where someone is permitted to divorce is when that marriage has already been destroyed by sexual immorality, that's what Jesus is saying here. So, Jesus is saying, if you casually divorce your wife because because well, you don't want to be married to her anymore and you've given her a certificate, well, in God's eyes, what do you think you mean you're divorced? You're still married. The union still stands. I don't validate that. And so, when she marries again, which would have been the norm in Jesus' time, you are making her the victim of adultery, You're bringing her into a sinful state because of your actions. And if you marry someone after dismissing your first wife, you're actually committing adultery. All of a sudden, you see what what Jesus is trying to do here. All of a sudden, something that the Pharisees took casually has shown itself to be actually a dire offence against God. So, Jesus is saying, you better make sure that your righteousness far exceeds theirs. Now, as I said, we'll address these more in the podcast tomorrow, but I'm wanting us to see the argument that Jesus is making about how the Pharisees and the teachers of the law loosen God's commands to make them convenient and we get to see how Jesus fills those commands out. So, we'll look at the last three more briefly. The next target in Jesus' sights is the fake piety of the oral tradition on oaths. Again, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. Sounds noble enough. And certainly the Old Testament had commands against sworeing a false oath and perjuring oneself. For example, Leviticus chapter 19 verse 12. Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Don't tell lies in my name. Don't bring my name into your deceit, is what God said. But what the rabbis did was come up with a series of elaborate rules about what formulas, that if you use them in your oath, I swear by Jerusalem, I swear by this or whatever, what ones would make your oath binding... And what would be, say, lesser oaths, where breaking them didn't matter as much. But once again, you see how that's loosening what God calls for from his people by narrowing it down to a series of disconnected dots when the big picture of what God commands is far more weighty. Verse 34, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Oaths shouldn't be what makes your words true. You really want to obey god's commands? What does Jesus say verse four thirty seven All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one as an aside, can I just say with this passage in particular, we can actually often find ourselves playing the Pharisee game with jesus' words here. Well you know we might say, "Well, what does that mean about if I go to court? you know so Christians make oaths in court or not. Um, Can I say with respect, that's too small a question, right? It's it's a bit dotty, right? It's not actually Jesus' concern here. When He says, don't make oaths at all, he's He's saying, don't make your truth conditional. That's the point He's making, your base level words should be enough. You shouldn't have to add stuff to it. Just don't do it, just be truthful in the first place. Don't be the kind of person who has to anchor your words to something else to make them believable or trustworthy. Tell the truth. Honour your commitments. And certainly don't play word games as a way to deceive or wriggle out of something. That's what the Pharisees did and you've got to be more than them. Now Jesus is really warmed up. And with the last two, he doesn't only fill out what the law means, he shows how the traditions have completely missed the point. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Oh, that's straight out of the Old Testament. Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, 20, Deuteronomy 19, 21. In its place, it was the law, a law for judges, about keeping punishment fitting the offence. It was there to place a just limit on retribution, to prevent excessive punishment to prevent accelerating and snowball effect vendettas as you get back and get back and get back and get back and get back. And it was a bit of a lesson to God's people as well, kind of saying, don't do unto others what you wouldn't want done to you. Unless you're prepared for someone to knock your tooth out, don't knock out someone else's. Restrain yourself. The Pharisees, of course, loosened this to the extent that it became a license for revenge. Right? That's what they actually do with it. So rather than as a, primi- a principle of limited retribution in the law courts, it became a justification to pay back if someone harmed or offended you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, I'm claiming. I'm, I'm getting payday. Right? Jesus is going, no, that's, that's not the way it works. Jesus says, you really want to obey God's commands? You go as far away from revenge as you can let's think about that. And in verses 39 to 42, he gives four challenging examples of powerful self-restraint. Be willing to bear with injustice, with patience, with self-control and with grace. And in this, Jesus absolutely walked the talk, didn't he? Well, the final example is a compelling exclamation mark on Jesus' teaching here. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. In some ways this is, this is the prime example of Pharisaic loosening of the law, freeing it from what it really is really all about, for it's perhaps the most offensive against the law's intent. So they take the deep and profound commandment that Jesus says is actually one of the two greatest commandments, to love one's neighbour as yourself, and diminish it so that just applies to your people and deliberately reversing it against the people you don't like. I only have to love my neighbour, I have to love you. Jesus would counter this mindset quite profoundly, as I'm sure many of you know, with his parable of the Good Samaritan. In this teaching here, though, the Pharisees could not have been further from the heart of their God. verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you only ever love those who love you back, what are you doing any different from anyone else in the world? Even those who know nothing about God do that. You want to be part of the kingdom of heaven that is ruled by a loving, gracious and merciful God, join the dots. You've got to aim higher than that. And then Jesus concludes his teaching on the law with this absolute zinger. He lays on his disciples in one sentence the full weight of the law. Verse 48 be perfect. Therefore, just as your Heavenly Father is perfect. If being told that they needed to be more righteous than the Pharisees hit them between the eyes, what do you reckon this line did? You want to know the righteousness that's worthy of the Kingdom of Heaven? Will you look at the one who's enthroned there? There's your measurement. It's a heavy word, isn't it? It's weighty. And it leads us to two places. First, the law leads us to our knees. Because when you reflect on the things we've looked at, even just briefly this morning, even things I hadn't mentioned that you heard as Brian was reading and you reflected on, I mean, it it makes sense, doesn't it? Like when when you reflect upon what Jesus teaches, there you go, yeah, that's good. That's good. I mean, refraining from anger, loving others, staying faithful, having real integrity that goes, just, that goes beyond the surface, that goes all the way in. I mean, that's good. That's worthy. That, that, that's, that's desirable and not something that is, he shouldn't be asking us to do. And that should be the aspiration of the faithful to go, yeah, that's what I want. We should aim to share the glorious character of our God and strive for that. We should have the kind of that, that Psalm 119 mindset, that here's God's law, looks deeper than the dot rules and wrestles with it to try to know what God's will is and so I can conform to it. What is this showing me about God? How do I see this fulfilled in Jesus so that I can do it? That's the Psalm 119 mindset and you totally can share it. So as Christians, we should perhaps rethink our relationship with the law. Obedience matters. And we should have a zeal to do what God says is right and be conscientious in staying away from things that are offensive to God and harmful to others. Discipleship includes the earnest pursuit of moral integrity and we should not apologise for running after that. And that is what we should go to our knees for in prayer, asking for God's help because we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness but doing something else while we're on our knees as well, hey? asking for his forgiveness, because we are poor in spirit and we are all too conscious of how short we fall and how often we fall short. But that's not the only place where Jesus' teaching on the law leads us. See, ultimately, when all of the dots are joined together, Jesus' teaching on the law, his fulfilling of it, paints this wonderfully profound picture... It takes us to the cross. God's beautiful law leads us to our knees because it leads us straight to the cross. The place where the Son of God, our perfectly righteous King, paid the penalty for all of our sin so that we could be clothed with all of his righteousness, perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, truly worthy of the Kingdom of Heaven and that is why it's worth meditating upon day and night. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for all that You have revealed to us in all of the Scriptures. Father, help us look again at Your wonderful law in the Old Testament that is sweeter than honey and is to be cherished. Lord, it will be bars of a prison in a sense that show us our sin but father we also will see how it leads us to Jesus perfection and especially his atoning death for us Uh, father please help us to be steadfast disciples of Christ longing for righteousness and seeking to live with integrity we pray in Jesus name amen